Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I have an interview for you with Dr. Joshua Pattison. Dr. Pattison teaches history at Texas State University, San Marcos. He received his PhD from UCLA, and the focus of our conversation is his book, American Heathens, Religion, Race, and Reconstruction in California, which was published in 2012. Please enjoy our conversation. So, Dr. Patterson, uh, what historical factors led California to become, in your words, the central battleground in defining citizenship after the Civil War? Well, there's evidence that Americans viewed California uh, as, as unique and different, even going back to the Spanish and the Mexican periods. But I think it really started with the California gold rush. The huge amount of capital being taken out of California, the national craze to get there, the surge of international immigration, uh, the instant statehood, right? All of this gave California a prominence from 1848 forward. And of course, it was California's admittance to the Union as a free state in 1850 that brought about the Compromise of 1850 and the New Fugitive Slave Act, both of which were crucial steps towards the Civil War. Even during the Civil War, the Confederacy had a plan. They hatched this uh, this plan to move through New Mexico into Southern California to get access to the Pacific. So after the Civil War, California already had that prominence in the national conversation. And of course, it was the largest, uh, most populous, populated state in the West. It had this uniquely diverse uh, demographic that included Irish Catholics and Mexican-Americans and Chinese immigrants and indigenous groups. So my book, American Heathens, looks at this period after the war when the Republican Party is rewriting the parameters of U.S. citizenship, not really rewriting, kind of establishing for the first time, actually, uh, the parameters. And California was this testing ground, you know, because if whiteness is not the prerequisite for American citizenship anymore, then out West... The question's not so much about African-Americans, but it's about Native Americans and Chinese immigrants. And, you know, California, because of this prominence, becomes the place where those questions get debated the loudest. And, you know, the, the Native populations of California had been denounced and demeaned as diggers, supposedly like the least civilized group on Earth. Right. And what would that mean if they were to become citizens and voters? And then the Chinese immigrants, right? Would they become citizens and voters? And so Democrats pointed to these groups in California and they fought against the expansion of citizenship and suffrage to African-Americans by pointing to these groups in California and saying, really, do you really want to bring in all of these these groups into, into the body politic? And... So then California became this central debating, um, debating. So California became this sort of central place of debate. And Republicans were on the defensive and they ultimately were not committed to a kind of universal male citizenship, right? They, they wanted to focus on the freedmen and women, not these Western groups. And the 14th and 15th Amendment 
were carefully written to exclude Native Americans and exclude Chinese immigrants while granting these rights to to African-American men. Yeah. Can, uh, so two follow-up questions to that. First, can we just kind of set the context for what we mean when we use the word citizenship? So how people would have viewed it back then? Because I think today we have a kind of a more developed understanding. It, it has a lot to do with personal rights and things along those lines. And I'm not sure that exactly corresponds. And then secondarily, why do you think that California didn't just become this cosmopolitan community where there's just em- embracing of multi-ethnic, multi-ethnicity as well as you know, different kinds of religion in the way that, you know, some other cosmopolitan, maybe more cities than states, you know, have developed differently. What was it the influence of Southern politicians in California or Confederate influences? What do you, why do you think we went that way and not the other? Yeah. So in terms of the first question, citizenship had never been defined up to this point. Dred Scott decision laid out the idea that uh, African-Americans were not citizens based on their race but there is there was no federal definition of of citizenship until really the 14th amendment uh and the civil rights act right after the civil war is a is a step towards that so you're right that what it means to be a citizen is a new concept that had never really been established until the 14th amendment lays it out in terms of you have to you know you have to be born within the United States and and subject to its jurisdiction, right? And so they add this language to the 14th Amendment, and you can trace it through the debates in Congress where they're they're sort of like, how can we establish the freedmen and women as being citizens while excluding these groups that we don't want to bring in? And of course, for for Chinese immigrants, there's federal uh, naturalization laws saying that if you're not a white immigrant, you're not allowed to naturalize. So so that was a way of excluding the Chinese. Native Americans are trickier, right? And so there's this kind of tortured language if you look to to these amendments where they're talking about subject to the jurisdiction of their laws and these kinds of phrases so as to exclude Native Americans from from this category. But it was vague enough still that that Congress had to issue a a sort of specific proclamation following the 14th Amendment being like, just to be clear, Native Americans not brought in by this, right? They had had to really clarify it. And in consequence, a lot of this stuff just means protection from violence. I mean, that's what the implication is for a lot of people is if you're a citizen, in some way, you're protected, whether through threat of force, if you act a certain, you know, if, if, if there's certain consequences from what happened. And so that seems like what the kind of the outcome is of being not included. Would you right. say that's accurate? So if we th- but if we think of the 14th Amendment specifically, right, it's being passed in the wake of the Black Codes, the 1865 Black Codes, 1866, the presidential reconstruction period, when the Republicans are really being driven to this 14th Amendment because of how freedmen and women are being treated in the South. Absolutely what you're talking about, uh, exposure to violence, vulnerability to violence, but also all the other kinds of things that are being that that the limits on their freedoms or limits on their rights that are being passed in the South. So to be a citizen enters you into certain protections, including from violence, but 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 also from other kinds of things that were that were happening to the to the to the freed African Americans in the South. I think we like to think that diversity and 
different groups living in close proximity leads to cross-cultural understanding and collaboration, right? And there is evidence of that at times happening in California, right? We do see uh, examples of that. I think in a white supremacist society, though, that, that structure does tend to pit groups against each other. So the, the example that comes to mind would be Irish Catholics who during this period were, you know, considered not fully white and because they're Catholic, they're not part of the Protestant majority. And so one of the, one of the things that some Catholic immigrants did in California was to become vociferously anti-Chinese, right? Dennis Kearney being a kind of prominent example on the working men's party. How do you gain access to whiteness? How do you gain access to Americanness? Well, one way to do that is to push yourself up by pushing another group down. And it's, I think, a product of the broader white supremacist society that California was and that the United States was and is that pits groups against each other in these ways. There are moments of 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 understanding and collaboration for sure. Uh, I don't want to give too pessimistic a picture of it. And of course, um, you know, California eventually will kind of become known for left coast politics and it's sort of liberal values but even even within that there's police brutality and a lot of counter trends to that stereotype yeah let's let's step back a second and put california in context uh, because your book is really about this recon you know it's it takes place within this reconstruction era and i think california since it was kind of tangential in some ways to the civil war and there wasn't a huge slave population i don't think people visualize california as necessarily part of that era i mean i think the transcontinental railroad reaching california initiated a new period but I think those are kind of boxed in separate categories for people. So how should we think about Reconstruction's relationship to California and vice versa? Yeah, I think you're right that historians till recently have not paid a lot of attention to the, the question of California in the West during Reconstruction. And while I was in graduate school, a couple of historians were starting that that conversation, uh, specifically Elliot West and, and Heather Cox Richardson published books and articles calling for what Elliot West called a greater reconstruction, right? That included the West in this reformation of citizenship after the Civil War. Now, Elliot West moved the timeline backward and he said, well, we really got to start that story with the U.S.-Mexico War, 1846. And, you know, that just further complicates the story of the West and citizenship when you're talking about Mexican-Americans becoming part of the United States. And, and then Heather Cox Richardson called for seeing Reconstruction as an era of citizenship. And she pushed this timeline forward in time to go all the way up to the Spanish-American War of 1898 and the establishment of a new kind of uh, overseas U.S. empire. So... There has been more attention to the the uh, topic of California and the West during Reconstruction. 
as I was writing my dissertation, which became my book, American Heathens, there were a couple other people also looking at California and Reconstruction. And we all took slightly different approaches. Stacy Smith looked at labor issues. And then her book, America, uh, her book, Freedom's Frontiers, the result of that. Michael Bottoms was looking into state politics. And then his book, An Aristocracy of Color, came out of that research. And then I looked at religion. So we all were doing dissertations at about the same time, looking at California and Reconstruction, but we all were looking at it through a slightly different lens. And so what would be your statement of how California should be figured within that story of Reconstruction? And is it something wrong with the term? Because people tend to think the term means rebuilding the South after the Civil War, but it's a lot more than that. Yeah. So I, I would argue that Reconstruction is a continental process that's not just about the South, and that the same Republican Party that is waging war against the Confederacy, that is establishing capitalism and free markets uh, in the South, they're also waging war against Native peoples in the West and are bringing capitalism and free labor to the West. It's the same people doing the same thing in the same era. And in fact, a lot of the Civil War generals go from fighting Confederates to fighting natives peoples in the West. I mean, Sherman being the most like famous example of this, right? The, there is not a break between those two topics, even though we tend to teach them as separate things. You know, we tend to focus on the Civil War in the South as one story. And then there's the West going on over here as a separate story. But it's part of the same story. It is a continental reconstruction of citizenship and what it means to be part of the United States that's happening both in the South and in the West at the same time, if we look at the 1860s as a whole. And what uh, what drew you in particular to focus on religion in this particular era? Uh, what was What was the draw? I saw it in the primary sources. Um, I saw it in the debates over citizenship. I saw it in the ways people were talking about what it means to be an American. And so as I was undertaking this research, I moved more and more to look at religious leaders and religious newspapers and religious sources because it was so much a part of the way people were talking about what it means to be an American. You know, specifically in this moment, one of the arguments Republicans are making to extend suffrage to African-American men, to to extend citizenship to African-Americans more generally, one of the main arguments they're making is they are Protestant Christians and therefore they are different than these other groups. Right. They're different than these heathen groups out west. And this term heathen. I saw used a lot to group together Native Americans and Chinese immigrants. So they had this, it had this kind of utility suddenly in this moment. The term has a long history. But in this moment, it takes on this new utility as a way of saying, well, those groups are outside of Protestant American values. And, you know, when you draw a line around the heathens versus the Christians, that suddenly includes freedmen and women. Right. So it has this kind of political use in this moment that I was seeing. And I drew it just then drew me to look at, well, what about so-called heathens who were Christians? What about Native Americans 
who were members of churches. What about Chinese immigrants who were preachers and who were missionaries and who, right? So they became fascinating figures because they they stood at this, they stood at the center of this debate suddenly, right? What does it mean to be a heathen and an American and a Christian? Well, that's a, that's a category, that scrambles the categories. Yeah. So then the question is, how do you, how do you take apart this, what is, sounds like ideology where race and religion are combined and fused in one concept in a lot of people's minds? Are people just using the vocabulary of religion to justify racist actions? Is that what it is? Or do you think it's more separable? Definitely, you have, I think, cynical politicians using this language at times very much in a targeted way to achieve certain political ends. I don't think there's any doubt that that is true. I also, though, would caution against seeing religion as just a kind of mask or expression of other things, right? If you take religion seriously as a historical force, that means it also has its own logic and creates its own consequences, right? So it's also true that the idea of of extending Christianity to these so-called heathen groups did scramble racial hierarchies, right? It's a different kind of hierarchy if you divide groups by religion than if you divide them by race. And I think a lot of the white missionaries who whose papers I read as part of this project, I I read a lot of missionary papers. And one thing about missionaries, they produce records and they're always documenting everything that they're doing. They're writing and writing and writing. So I had a lot of missionary papers. They are genuinely committed to a different kind of order. One that's not necessarily nationalist. It's not necessarily racialized, right? They are committed to a kind of Christian universalism. Now, a lot of those figures who were proponents of citizenship, for example, for the Chinese immigrants, when the pressure really gets put on them, it was heartbreaking to then see that those ministers embraced Chinese exclusion by the 1880s. And that's kind of where my story ends is when we get to the 1880s and a lot of the proponents of this Christian universalism ended up abandoning their commitment under the political pressure that gets put on anybody who's not for Chinese exclusion, for example. And you see some similar things happening with native policy leading to the Dawes Act. It is a force I, I take seriously in people's understanding of the world and in affecting the course of history. Yeah. Well, let's look at it from two sides. Let's first kind of look at how uh, the white Christian West looked at these two different groups, and then we'll talk about how they respond. So let's let's break down the difference between how they looked at uh, some of the Chinese immigrants versus the native groups. How were they conceptualized by uh, this kind of paternalist Christian uh, group within California? There'd been a long history of, you know, going back to the colonial period of British colonists interacting with Native Americans. And there is a long history of mission work uh, among Native Americans, uh, especially coming out of the Second Great Awakening. You saw a big push to Western groups, right? That they were considered foreign missions. Uh, 
generally speaking, um, because natives at that time were native nations were imagined as separate countries, foreign countries. So they saw this as part of an outreach that they were doing to all parts of the world. And there was this understanding of Native Americans as potentially becoming Christians, uh, older ideas of natives as having no souls or being beasts like those ideas had really been discredited by this point. And there was a history of groups like the Cherokee, right, becoming members of Christian churches. And um, so it is a, it is a different kind of understanding of Native people. Right. There's also other racial ideas unique to understanding of Native Americans, ideas of dis the disappearing, the vanishing Native American. Right. That they're going to that they're just they're just going to fade away um like the like the dew before the rising sun these kinds of metaphors right there was an understanding in terms of native people more generally that they could be part of christian churches there was also a lot of catholic native americans so that is a big part of the understanding of native religion right is that there's catholic native americans ever throughout the west due to spanish french um you know uh, histories so it is a, a kind of unique in that sense uh, when when Protestant white Protestants are imagining Native Americans, all this is part of their thinking. And then specifically during Reconstruction, the the reservations are given by President Grant over to mostly Protestant, although some Catholics, Protestant mission missionaries, Protestant mis ministers. They were given control under, uh, of reservations during the peace policy. Um, and they took that as part of their now their their job was to finally uh, convert these Native Americans that were um, more and more being confined to reservation. So that's the specifics in terms of understanding their understanding of Native Americans and Christianity. For the Chinese, it's a different trajectory. It's or the Orient, right? It's European interactions with the Orient, the so-called Orient that, that go back centuries. Uh, they are imagined as being more unassimilable than any other immigrant group. Of course, China has its own complicated religious history with Buddhism and Confucianism and Chinese religions. And so though they are bringing these religions to California with them, and they are being seen as especially foreign, especially dangerous. And there is the conception of the Chinese as not staying, right? Not being American, sending all their money home, leaving as soon as they can, not being able to become American the way that other immigrant groups have been given that chance. And a lot of that has to do with their specific religious beliefs and then the establishment of what the white Californians called Joss houses, these temples that um, were perceived as taking over and invading the space of Christian neighborhoods. And sometimes Christian churches would be turned into these, these kinds of temples. And that was especially inflammatory when something like that happened, because it seemed like there was this ancient struggle between East and West that was now playing out in California. So different histories, different racializations and, you know, different religious conversations. I wonder too, just how these two different groups visualized religion. Cause it seems like if you study Chinese religion, native American religious practices and Christian, they're operating almost on different planes. 
have different objectives have, I mean, with Christianity, it seems like at times it's a zero sum game. It's either in and out, whereas there are some religions that are much more inclusive and uh, much more open to the existence of multiple religious groups in a single area. Um, so how did the Chinese and Native Americans visualize this kind of aggressive zero-sum approach to religion? Yeah, especially for Native peoples who were polytheistic and had a an understanding of the divine that included many sources of spiritual power, right? The idea of a monotheistic exclusionary Christianity probably was foreign and... I can't help but wonder when I read about China, sorry, when I read about Native Americans who are, you know, converting to Christianity, this is the term that the missionaries use, right? Oh, it's a great success. We have all these people who've converted, right? Well, what does that mean, right? From their perspective, if, if you understand the divine as having many gods and many sources of, of spiritual power, are you adding one more to your understanding, right? Is is that what's happening here as opposed to a kind of like, no, you've given up everything you ever believed and now you're a Methodist, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's not that simple. And so, you know, that's where it comes down to how the historian tells the story. Do we, do we talk about converts? Do we tell about people who affiliate with Christian churches? Do we talk about people who attend Christian churches? Do we talk about people who are members, right? You know, and similarly from the, from the Chinese immigrants who are coming and have this complicated history in terms of their, their religious traditions. And I think are also kind of confronting Christianity. Now, some Chinese immigrants had been exposed in China. And actually a lot of the ones who join churches in California had already been exposed and perhaps had converted, right, to use that term, in China. And they they were, um, you know, so they have their own unique stories. And there's no doubt that certain individuals became 100% like committed Christians. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think we want to rule that out either, right? In terms of the most exclusive monotheistic understanding you can, you can have of it, there's definitely some individuals who had that. I mean, and and I found a lot of voices in the archive of, for example, Chinese American lay ministers who talk about pagan China and they pray for their countrymen. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say that that's some kind of strategic language entirely. I think that they probably viewed it that way. You know, I think we also want to have space for for just religious change and people can change religion. So did uh, any of these Christian leaders make the logical jump from their heathenism to violence? Or was that the doctrine being espoused by Christian leaders then kind of giving people carte blanche to then carry out things like exclusion and the genocide that we are very familiar with that occurred in California. Uh, I'm trying to look at kind of maybe not causality because that's not possible, but you kind of get what I'm saying. Yeah. So some of the loudest voices against violence toward native people and toward again against Chinese immigrants were white missionaries who'd spent some cases years, decades working with these groups and they became public activists 
to fight against the treatment, the poor treatment that these groups were, were receiving. The language of heathens and the Christian ideas of exclusion and demonization, though, could also lead to violence. And so you also have some Christians who were justifying these acts of violence by by citing uh, Christian ideas and by casting them as heathens that are outside the potential grace of 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 God. So it can go both ways. And for individual people, it can change over time as well. As I, as I mentioned, some of these ministers would come to embrace exclusion by the 1880s, which was heartbreaking to see that they'd been a champion of Chinese immigration and they one by one became proponents of it. And mm. as we know, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 opens the door to a whole new wave of violence, purges, riots, anti-Chinese riots that happen across the West. And how did um, Chinese and indigenous people resist uh, this influence, this paternalistic Christian influence? Well, there's good evidence that they preferred their own preachers when they had the opportunity. They became preachers. G. Gam is on the cover of my book, and he was a lifelong Christian who became a minister and preached a different kind of message, you know. So they preferred their own leaders when they could. I think there's evidence to say that. And they also worked within existing structures the best they could. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, part of the challenge in answering that question is the sources and what sources we have to answer that question. A lot of the sources we have are from white Christian hands, right? They're, they're white Christian newspapers. They're the mission reports written by the white missionaries. It's the Indian agent recording what people are saying and doing. We have to read through the between the lines, kind of, in, in a lot of these sources to get at that question of what are these native Christians and these Chinese American Christians wanting and how are they understanding Christianity? And But I think it's fair to say that they did desire their own preachers as much as they could, as much as they could, and some of them became native spokespeople, preachers, uh, within these different denominations. Do we see some syncretism happening when that occurs? Do we see kind of modifications to fit this cultural and different cosmological views of the world? So one of the interesting things that happened at the Round Valley Reservation, where I did a lot of my research, is that the ghost dance, not the 1891, but the earlier one comes through, which is in itself a kind of combination and new new combination of various things that that uh had come before it and then right on the the heels of the ghost dance coming through the reservation there's this big methodist revival and hundreds of natives there join the methodist church and then you see that changing just a few years later and many of them have left the church and you know gone back to to other ways so absolutely in the West, what part of what makes it so fascinating is you've got combinations, change, religions changing over time and space, 
it's it's happening um it's happening throughout the west and it's definitely happening within these communities that i'm looking at how would you respond to someone who brought this idea that by lumping all of these protestant christian groups into one category it's a form of occidentalism kind of the opposite of orientalism which is trying to stereotype one group uh how would you respond to someone that says that's that's what's happening when you refer to kind of right Protestant Christians in one category. Yeah, I think that's a fair point that the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Baptists have their own unique histories that we can tang- uh, disentangle. And I do a bit of that in the book where I do talk about different groups, trajectory at different moments and certain ones were more committed to racial justice and certain ones were less. And I think that's fair. And there's always a degree of complexity that is worth looking at. But I also think it's fair to group them together at times and to sort of see some continuities and to see some similarities. And in general, I found not as much difference between these different denominations as you might think, that there were groups that were more or less committed and the timelines were slightly different, but there was a pretty similar story in terms of coming around to embrace exclusion, coming around to to embrace the Dawes Act that was happening across these different Protestant denominations. Now, the Catholic Church is, is different, and, and there's a lot of interesting things going on in terms of Catholics in California, Irish Catholics, Mexican Catholics and their place in the racial order, their place in the religious order, how they're responding to these larger debates about citizenship and reconstruction, right? So, but in terms of lumping Protestants together, I guess I'm guilty of that, but I think I think it's uh, I think it's appropriate uh, for the most part. I think that one of the challenges, right, with a lot of these Protestant sects is that a lot of the stuff, and I appreciate you wading into this because a lot of church history has found itself in kind of isolated sectors of academia and people kind of don't, it seems like they don't want to touch it. And so, and I also tend to agree with you in response to that feedback that while there is some minutia of difference between a Episcopalian and a, a Methodist, to them, it might be a big difference. I think what you're pointing out is there was historical trends that they all got pulled into. And whether you believe, whether you take the Eucharist or whether you believe certain ideas about Jesus Christ's divinity, I think that maybe didn't have a huge effect on how you related to indigenous people, for example. So I tend to agree with you. And I, what, what are some of the challenges in writing about religion and in academia that you discovered in this process? Well, I think it's still true that among Western history scholars, religion is understudied. It has been true since I started graduate school 20 years ago, and it's still true. I think you can go to the Western History Association conference and you can look through the listing of panels and you usually find a panel on Mormons and you might find a panel on, you know, Catholic missions, Spanish missions or Mexican Catholic history. And then you might not find anything else. I mean, it's not unusual at all to find only two or three papers or panels uh, out of 100 that are looking at religion. And what's the effect of that blind spot? Well, I think it's a form of presentism because whether you and I are religious ourselves doesn't matter. The people we study 
for example, in the 19th century, but also in the 20th century and also in the 21st century, they were generally religious. I mean, that, that was, that's not a controversial statement. They understood the world in terms of religious categories, in terms of sacred, in terms of faith. So I think it's a form of presentism to ignore religion um, or to just see religion in kind of Marxist terms of a, you know, a kind of expression of something else, right? I, I think that also when you do see religion brought in, it's sometimes viewed simply as, well, that's just justification for capitalism or whatever, right? They're not taking religion seriously in and of itself. Yeah. So I actually draw from religious studies to help me understand religion in a more nuanced way because Western historians still have a ways to go in terms of that. And there's a lot of just major subjects that we still haven't fully understood because there's just not as much focus on religion as there could be. Let's close with books. Uh, book recommendations is my favorite section. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience who's interested in these subjects? Well, there's an anthology of essays called Civil War Wests, Testing the Limits of the United States, which is edited by Adam Aronson and a Andrew Graybill. And I recommend that. I do have an essay in there, but I recommend this book because it pulls together a lot of the newest scholarship on why we should put the West into the story of Reconstruction. So that's one I would recommend. In terms of religion and race, Catherine Jin Lum has a new book called Heathen, Religion and Race in U.S. History. Recommend that in terms of a new approach to a lot of the topics that we've been talking about today, specifically these hierarchies, these sometimes competing, sometimes overlapping hierarchies of religion and race. And then another third book I'll recommend is called We Are Not Animals, Indigenous Politics of Survival, Rebellion, and Reconstitution in 19th Century California. Martin Rizzo Martinez, very thoroughly researched, fascinating look at uh, Native Californians in the Santa Cruz region across different, different eras and looking at their responses to, to, col to colonialism and brings the Native women into the, into the picture uh, really well. So those are three books I would recommend. All right. And uh, lastly, uh, what's next and where can people find your work? Well, I teach at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas, and I am currently working on a book about a sex scandal at a spiritualist colony in Northern California. I've been working on this book for 10 years. I can't promise you when it will come out, but it is going to um, look at spiritualism race, sex, and religion in late 19th century California. Ooh, that's, I mean, that's like with a glass of wine, you know, that sounds like, a, you know, a nice evening read. Um, can you give us a, a little taste of just kind of what the story is, just the kind of brief background on that? Sure. So this is a group called Fountain Grove in Santa Rosa, California. 1891, a sex scandal erupts, big media story, William Randolph Hearst's running the examiner in San Francisco, birth of yellow journalism. And this story ends up becoming this big national story, international story as well, focused on Fountain Grove, which was a spiritualist community. The accusation was made that they were practicing free love, that the leader, Thomas Lake Harris, was using his powers of hypnotism to 
takes financial and sexual advantage of the 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 women in the group and there were japanese men who were members of the group so this whole scandal is inflamed by the ideas of white women and japanese men being involved together and i track this story from the second great awakening in new york where thomas lake harris begins his career all the way through Japanese internment and what happens to the Fountain Grove lands uh, in the era of World War II. So that gives you a little taste of what I'm working on. That sounds like an epic saga, and I can't wait to read it. I appreciate you talking with me today. This has been great. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate the invitation. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.